Well, good morning. It is uh, quite an honor, quite an honor indeed to be here. I've uh, been looking forward to this for a while. First, let me just say, your choir is amazing. I, uh, man, that was beautiful. And uh, I, I try not to sing too much. It's not really a uh, joyful noise. I, uh, I, I like to try to put, when I, I sing to my, I've got five children. I've been married for 13 years. Um, yes, we are exhausted, uh, but we love every bit of it. But I try to sing to my two little girls. They're five and three every night before I put them to bed. My five little, my five-year-old's going to take over the world. She's really sharp. And uh, every time I try to sing to her, she goes, no sing, daddy, no sing, just pray, just pray. It's that bad. So uh, I was obviously very grateful to uh, hear the beautiful choir. Listen, I, uh, real quick, I just want to say thank you. Um, you know, it really is a humbling, encouraging thing to be here. Um, when I was converted in college, and immediately when I was converted, I, uh, I had a heart for loss, the hurting, the oppressed. I grew up down in Miami and South Florida, a very rough area of town, and uh, in a very, very diverse community. And I've always had a heart uh, for that my entire life. And sports were a way to help an angry kid find his path until uh, I got to college and Christ ran me down. And uh, when I got converted, I thought I was called in the ministry, but I also wrestled with whether or not I was called to coach. I thought and uh, wrestled with it for a while. So I went to seminary. And um, anyway, long story short, uh, I went into coaching for a while. And then uh, eventually, this was after seminary, and then eventually uh, God called me back into this. And it was really crazy being 38 years old and sensing this call to go into campus ministry, you know, thinking, I'm too old for this. This is going to be nuts. What are you doing, God? And, uh, and then to find out what it was like to raise money to be a missionary in the local campus, right? And then I was like, man, what are you doing, God? <laughs> and uh, I, I just can't tell you thank you enough for your support and your care, uh, for your prayers, uh, the kindness we received, the financial gifts. You know, it's just sometimes the word thank, the two words thank you just seem cheap, right? <laughs> like they're not enough uh, to tell you thank you for how appreciative we are. But I'm just going to have to let thank you be enough this morning. Uh, and my, uh, my, my wife sends her best. She wishes she could be here, but with five children, um, traveling is a disaster. So, but uh, real quick, uh, we started off state about a year and a half ago. We started with two students. Uh, we are now at over 100 plus involved. Uh, we've been seeing some incredible things. Um, if you didn't know, Valdosta State University is one of the most racially diverse campuses in the United States, uh, with close to 40% African-American and 10% multicultural. And when we were looking at campuses, we had about four campuses that we had the possibility of a job offer. And after we visited Valdosta State, uh, I felt like I was home. As uh, where I was raised, I've always had a deep heart uh, for African-Americans and for Cuban-Americans. And uh, so we pulled the trigger, and they were just uh, they were just foolish enough to hire us. And uh, I can say it's been beautiful. God has been at work. Uh, we've been seeing some incredible things. Uh, we've been seeing kids struggle with same-sex attraction get delivered and come to Christ. We've been seeing skeptics come around. Close to 30% of our group are skeptics um, that never step foot in the church. But our students have created such a welcoming and loving culture through the gospel. They're reconsidering. One of our neatest stories, uh, coolest stories, exciting stories, uh, and I'll get started, was we were, uh, we have a junior young man, and uh, he's African-American, and one of, uh, one of the most exciting young leaders I've been, ever been around. Sharp, brilliant, witty, great with people, loves the Lord, uh, very big into Black Lives Matter and NAACP, and, and very, he gives up three, literally, this young man, he gives up three days of his week as a college student to go down to the inner city to mentor young students. A college student, 
giving up his time to go give back. Can you believe that? And we were sitting in a Bible study, and we were studying the gospel, and we were looking at the implications of Christ's righteousness, right? That Christ's righteousness is what makes us right with God. And he's, we're working through this, and all of a sudden he goes, I've never seen this before. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, I have never seen this before. I said, what are you talking about? Just get to it, right? He goes, I never in all of my heart to heal racism, in all of my heart to be an activist my entire life, I never saw that the gospel is the only hope of healing racism in our world. He said, if what you're telling me is true, that our righteousness is a joke, that none of us have anything to feel superior or inferior upon, and if Christ's righteousness is what makes us right with the Father, then this means the gospel is the only hope for healing racism. And I said, you're exactly right. And that changed his entire trajectory of how he sees going about what he feels he's called to do. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So God is at work uh, despite them having me. And uh, please, please continue to pray. And uh, thank you. If you would, if you were willing and able, would you please stand uh, as we read the book of Judges. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah, Judah shall go up, and behold, I have given into the land this, his hand. And Judah said to Simeon and his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him, and then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and Adoni Bezek fled. But they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings, seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. And as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And then the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they captured, they captured Jerusalem, and they struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, and in the Jeb, and in the lowland. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of the Lord. No, the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. When, uh, when I went to RTS, I decided I wanted to do a Master's of Divinity and Master's of Philosophy for two reasons. Master's Divinity, because I wanted to wrestle with the greatest thoughts and the answers that the thinkers and, and theologians and scholars had come up with through the years. And master's of Philosophy, because I wanted to study the greatest questions that have ever been asked, right? To answer to one, to, the philosophy helps you walk in to understand what are the questions that, that history has always asked? What are the questions that are being asked right now? Because if you try to give people the answers and it's not the questions they're asking, well, then you're irrelevant. And while I was there, there were two thinkers I really enjoyed. One was Blaise Pascal the darling of Europe of the 1600s. 
And uh, Blaise Pascal said, listen, if you, if you want to reach the lost, if you want to reach skeptics, if you want to be a friend to those who have serious doubts and questions, then you've got to make the faith reasonable and you've got to make the faith attractive. And what he meant by that was reasonable meaning you have to outthink the lost world. You have to be willing to wrestle and come to them with their doubts and help them find the answers that they're looking for. And by attractive, he meant that we have to be willing to out-love and out-care for the lost world. It's a powerful vision. C.S. Lewis, uh, the darling of Oxford and Cambridge, right? The great thinker, the great English scholar, uh, was a man who was a deep apologist and evangelist. And he had a deep burden for all of the professors around him. And so many of them were skeptics, some of the greatest skeptics ever, some of the greatest minds. And C.S. Lewis always talked about that his strategy was to get people to ask, what is your most basic presupposition in life? What is the most core belief that you are building your entire life upon? Have you ever thought about that? What is the most core belief? What is the single most core belief that you are building your entire life upon? Because he believed whatever we deeply believe determines what we do and what we're going to become, right? For me, mine is this. This is the, the, the core belief that I base my entire life on. And that is that the triune God exists, and he has chosen to reveal himself. Let me say that again. That the triune God exists, and he has chosen to reveal himself. Triune being Trinitarian. Let me explain what this means. That God exists, right? That we believe that he is up there, that he is around, that he's near, he's present. That, and think about the opposite of that. If God didn't exist, then there is no reason for you to be here this morning. There's no reason for you to have morality. There's no reason for you to have ethics. There's no reason to devote yourself to this. If there's no God, then everything is absurd. Everything is nothingness, like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus said. That life is just nausea waiting to end. But we don't believe that, do we? We believe there is a God who exists. But if he exists and he hasn't chosen to reveal himself, then he's kind of like this great cloud in the sky, right? They're all just kind of going, ooh. Ah, but we don't know what he thinks. We don't know what he likes. We don't know what he hates. If he hasn't chosen to reveal himself, then we have no clue. We are left to our imagination to figure out his interpretation of everything we think and we feel and we experience. But that's not true. He has chosen to reveal himself. And he's revealed himself within the written word contained in the Old and the New Testament. Listen, here's my point. Here's why I bring this up. I think life really boils down to how do you view God? And many times life comes down to in that it's the human experiences versus the God explanations. Listen, some of you are young right now, right? Some of you girls, you've experienced mean girls. You've been hurt. You've been betrayed. You've been cut out. Some of you boys, right? You've, uh, you've ex experienced bullying, right? You've been, uh, you've been rejected. Uh, you've experienced daddy ball and sports and other things like that. Some of you are in college. You've had professors that were unjust. You've had professors that never show up. You have students that harm you and hurt and uh, cause hurt to your life. Some of you are older, right? You've lost loved ones before you were supposed to. You've been passed over for jobs that you knew you earned and you were rightfully uh, ready to take. You had business deals that were supposed to be home runs that were grand slams and then they fell apart before you even knew it. Some of you have, some of you have devoted your entire life to your children and now they've grown up and they hate the faith and they hate the church. Listen, hard questions that every single one of us asks. The human experience many times makes us question if the explanations that God gives us are really true and if they can be trusted. 
For example, a few years ago, I saw a news story, and it was really tough to read. Two-year-old little girl was walking down the street with her mom. Dog got loose. The little girl took off, going as fast as she could. The little girl just happens to step on a septic tank cover the wrong way. The cover flips, and the little girl goes flying down into a septic tank, and she sinks into 50 inches of raw sewage. The mother froze, paralyzed. Foster and he's screaming, not knowing what to do or even how to react. Listen, how can a two-year-old little girl drown in sewage? How can there be places where we're helplessness to do anything about it? This isn't supposed to happen. Moms aren't supposed to freeze. Kids aren't supposed to be hurt. Have you ever looked at this world and said, this place is crazy? Everything is broken. And the reality is, if you pay attention long enough, if you look around at your life, and if you look into the scriptures, this story and judges and many stories like this leave you asking, who is God? Is he caring or is he cruel? So many times you experience, one day God seems like this loving great father, and then others, sometimes you think, well, maybe he is this harsh, cruel judge. Maybe he's just waiting to unleash his revenge. You look at pages in the Bible and you see stories like this where God unleashes his vengeful wrath. And then other stages, places in the Bible where he's incredibly loving and merciful. And you go, what do I do with this? What do I build my life on? Who is this God? What do I trust? Are the skeptics right that he's a bipolar narcissist? Are the theologians and the pastors right that he really is the caring father that sits over all things? What do we do? This morning, we're going to look at that question. Is God caring or is God cruel? And we're going to look at it from the beginning of Judges. And we're going to take more of a theological approach and to help you understand other things and frame other things because this is a major question that people ask. What do you do with these passages where God unleashes murder? And how does it relate to the experiences that you wrestle with in your life that just don't seem to marry up? And so, without further ado, let's dive into Judges chapter 1. The first thing we see in this text is it's a horror story. In verses 1 through 3, Moses has died, long died. Joshua has died. They're great military and they're great social and civil and spiritual leader. And here they are. They're sitting at the edge of the promised land. And the people of God start to freak out. Like, what do we do? Right? We've got no land. We've got no money. We've got no resources. I mean, young people, they didn't have Snapchat. Uh, there was no Chick-fil-A. And they've got no leader. And they're crying out to God, what are we going to do? You promised us this. We're right here. What do we do? And God looks at them and says, Judah, send Judah. Judah is going to be the one to rid the land of all the evils. Judah is going to be the one to clear everything out. Judah is going to be your deliverer. Send Judah. And then in verses 4 through 7, all of a sudden, the people of God go nuts. They begin mutilating. They begin vandalizing. They begin torturing, burning cities down. They begin murdering. They begin the annihilation of a people group. It is revenge unleashed with divine permission. And you can't ignore it. It's there. Listen, part of the book of the goal, part of the goal of the book of Judges is kind of like an intruder alert. That it's meant to jolt you into an attention. It's meant to shake us into a right view of ourselves. It's one of the themes that's constantly cycles through this entire book. Why? It's because most of us really don't think we're that bad. Most of us really don't think we're not righteous. Most of us really don't think we're really that bad of sinners. And when we think about our sin, we really just think, you know, I kind of got this whole thing mastered, figured out. And, you know, it's really just kind of a set of annoying disturbances. But it isn't really a big deal. 
And I think for most of us, we really struggle to think our sin really is a big deal and that it's worse than it really is. But the book of Judges strikes the tornado siren and says that if you don't realize the nastiness of sin, if you don't realize the nastiness of your sin, of my sin, not sin in general, not sin on CNN, not sin on social media, not sin down the street, but your sin and my sin, then we are in real danger. You see, in 1983, Mike Wallace did a 60-minute interview with Yehul Diner. And Diner was a Holocaust survivor and became a famous writer. During the interview, Diner uh, recounted being at the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Uh, many of you know who he was. Adolf Eichmann was one of the primary organizers of the Holocaust in the Nazi army. Uh, he was pure evil. He was a pure monster. There's this video clip of Diner walking into the courtroom, and he sees Eichmann. It's powerful. You've got to find it. He sees Eichmann for the first time since being free from the concentration camp. And when he sees him, he freezes. And he begins sobbing uncontrollably, and he faints. He passes out. So Wallace, during the interview, asked the nurse, he said, what happened, you know? When you saw him, what, you know, what, what happened in the situation? What happened in the courtroom? You know, were you... Were you terrified? Were you afraid? Did you think maybe he was going to get loose? You know, did, did you know, PSD, the post-traumatic, did it, uh, did it come at you? And uh, Deneur said, no, 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 actually, no, no, it was none of those things. It was, it was none of those at all. Rather, as Deneur explained to Wallace, he said this, all at once I realized that Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. He was not this godlike creature that had murdered so many of my family members and my countrymen and my brothers and sisters, that this Eichmann was an ordinary man. And I was afraid and I was terrified for myself because for the first time I realized I am just like he. That if they give me the freedom and they give me the permission, I will unleash vengeance and revenge against him in a way that only dreams could be imagined. And I saw for the first time that I am capable of doing what I thought was impossible. I am exactly like he. He summarized his feelings by saying, Eichmann really is in all of us. Did you hear that? Did you hear that the reality of the human heart is that every single one of us are capable of tremendous evil? That if given the freedom, if given the power, if given the appointment, that we, just like Denor, who craved to be a monster after Eichmann, could do the same thing. You see, the book of Judges says we really are that exact same monster that you're watching in the book of chapter 1. Here's the thing. Now, many of you say, listen, Chad, you don't know me. And you're right, I don't know you. I mean, I'd love to get to, but I live in Valdosta. And, uh, but some of you are saying, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a bad person. You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an accountant. I'm a bean counter, right? Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a respectable gentleman, respectable lady, right? Uh, how, could you ever, how could you ever put me on the same parallel with these people? I've never committed murder. I've never even hurt anybody. I mean, I've never even hurt a squirrel for crying out loud, though I want to. Well, that's a good point. How could I ever dare say that? Well, I think it's an understanding of the perfection of the holiness of God. Listen, for a deed to be perfect, right? For us to be righteous, for, for us to be righteous and to be perfect, you've got to understand the standard, not my standard, not your standard, but God's standard is this. That you have to be perfect in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, 24-7, and motivated by the glory of God. That to be righteous, to be perfect, you have to be perfect in your thought, your words, and your deeds, 24-7, and motivated by the glory of God. Now I ask you, have any of you ever carried that weight? There's no way. <laughs> I haven't either. Hence the need for Jesus. 
that He is my law keeper. He is my covenant fulfillment. And maybe you've said, well, I'm still not convinced. Well, then I take you to the book of Matthew where Jesus says, okay, let's talk. Um, if you think you're righteous, if you don't think you're as sinful and, and as deeply wicked as these people, uh, let's talk about the issue of adultery. And maybe some of you say, I've never committed adultery. I've never done that. And Jesus says, well, man, have you ever looked at a woman inappropriately? Have you ever lusted? Ladies, have you ever thought inappropriate thoughts after a man? And then Jesus says, you're just as guilty of committing it as the person who did it in their deeds. You see, here's my point. By God's standards in his court of law, we are completely guilty and condemned. Meaning our thought life in God's economy is just as true as our actions and our deeds, which puts us on the same level as the people in the story, giving us a mirror into our souls of just how wicked and sinful we really are, but we cover it up and we forget. So the first takeaway is this. Do you have a right view of yourself? Do you see yourself in Judges chapter 1? Do you see the horror and the nastiness of your sin, of our sin? But the deeper question is this. Since this is historically true, this actually happened. Make no mistake, this is not a fairy tale, this is not a myth. What does this say about who God really is? You see, here's what's crazy. God commands his people to go in and kill and wipe out the Canaanites, and it's not even seen as evil or wicked. How could God... How could the good, loving, holy God command the extinction and the annihilation of a people group? How could your loving God call for the stealing of somebody else's land? Because that is exactly what happens here. Skeptics on my campus come up to me and say, see, this is proof. You worship a narcissistic, sick God. They say things to me like, see, look, you worship a murderer. See, you are devoted to somebody who's on board with stealing another person's land. And you're going to try to tell me that your God is good? And I smile and say, yeah, yeah. What if there's more to the story? What if you hang on with me for a minute? Let me explain and fill a little bit of the data in. Let's see what else there is. So hang with me for a minute. Let me ask you a question. What do you do? What would you do if you were assaulted? What would you do if your home was pillaged and stolen? What would you do if an unspeakable act of racism was committed against you? What would you want? What would you crave to happen? And if this happened to you, would you call these perpetrators innocent? <laughs> over and over again, people assume that these Old Testament groups were people who were just like, leave it to be at Cleaver, right? They were making Amish butter, and they were making furniture, and they were happy and sweet and sitting around the dinner table, and they were just sweet, loving, merciful people that were like the, you know, the they were just like the utopia of society. And then God kind of has a bad day. And he's like, I don't like those people. Boop, right? And God just strikes them. That's not the story at all, folks. Listen, if you go back into the book of Deuteronomy, and if you go back into Leviticus, you see what they were up to. They were sacrificing children to God. They were abusing the elderly. They were hurting the poor. They were abusers. They were practicing all types of sexual immorality. They were a brutal and an evil civilization. And to say that the Canaanites were innocent would mean, well, that every murderer, assaulter, and racist is, well, innocent. And I don't think there's a person alive that would say that. All of us know about ISIS. They made ISIS look like tame puppies. And uh, there's nobody I know that isn't longing for God to bring judgment and justice to ISIS. You see, the truth is, is that God commands the Israelites to be the agents of his judgment on the Canaanite people. So the second thing we see is, this is a justice story. 
It's what theologian Meredith Klein calls the intrusion ethic. Let me say it again. The intrusion ethic. He says that what happens here is God, who alone has the knowledge from the beginning until the end, who is all-powerful, all-controlling, all-knowing, all-present, all-everything, that he alone has the authority, that God has the authority and the right to bring future judgment into the present, that what is coming to people for all their wickedness gets injected into the present now. And so the God who knows all things, knows what is being stored up, takes future judgment and injects it into the present now. So that in Judges chapter 1, God says, your time is up. Your number is being called. It is time for you to give an account for what you have done. And he uses the Israelites to be his agents, his tools of his justice. Robert Shaw wrote an article called The Reformed Faith, an exposition of the Westminster Confession. He says this, that God has given testimony to this truth in all the extraordinary judgments which he has executed since the beginning of the world. That though so much wickedness remains unpunished in daily life, though so much wickedness is undiscerned in our world, yet God sometimes executes judgment upon daring offenders, showing that he judges in the earth, and to give warning to men and women of a judgment that is to come. He calls these signal judgments. That these signal judgments, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness of men and women, and an intimation is given of what he will further do thereafter. Citing 2 Peter 2, 5 and 6, and 2 Peter 3, 5 and 7. But some of you may say, Chad, this just isn't fair. I don't like this. This isn't right. This isn't just. Uh, look at verse 7. In verse 7, the evil king, the evil king says this, And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings. Think about that. Seventy kings, seventy nations, seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. And as I have done, so God has repaid me. So here he is, this evil, wicked king, and he's saying, this is just. God is just. He is giving me what I deserve, and I accept it. Uh, that even he is able to admit that in the situation. And so it shows us the character of God in the face of sin. Listen, the God of the Bible is not a passive coward. He's not a God that stands back unaffected and apathetic. No, he comes and he deals with it. And he loves the world he created. And he wants you to know that, that he takes sin very seriously. But listen, I want to stop for a moment. And I want to be pastorally sensitive. Because I know for some of you, this is a really hard issue. And I hope you understand I'm not ignoring that. But I think deep inside, that deep inside, whatever upheavals or whatever struggles you have about a loving God being a just judge, I think deep inside you know that genuine love means that judgment must always be true. That genuine love means that judgment must always be true. Listen, an unloving God, an unloving God would remain apathetic about cruelty. An unloving God would do nothing about human trafficking. An unloving God wouldn't give a flip about racism. An unloving God wouldn't care if babies are being murdered. An unloving God would let complete abuse go unchecked. Why do people get so mad at God of the Bible for holding people accountable? Why do people hate God and yet hate that criminals get off scot-free? Why do some say that God is mean, God is cruel, and yet they despise racists who get away with hurting people all the time? Why do people curse the nature of God for judging people justly and yet get so full of rage from injustice in our world? Listen, the truth is, 
Every single one of us craves justice. And we long for a true hero, a true God that actually brings it. In a culture of cowards, in a culture of people who run away and hide, we long for a true hero, a true God that says, I'm the one. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the king who's just, who you've looked for your entire life. Hear me. You can't have it both ways. You can't demand justice in our world and then get mad at God who says, I am the one that actually does something about it. I am the one that actually brings true justice. You know, it reminds me of uh, my children, my, uh, my seven-year-old. We call him Baby Einstein because he does a lot of unique things. And when he was about two years old, uh, my boy had a, uh, had a love for two things. Are you ready? It was metal objects and electrical outlets. Now, I don't know if you're well-versed in physics, but those two things don't marry up real well. All right, And so this little boy, when he was about two years old, he just, he, no matter what he did, he would look for things that were metal, and then he would try to jam them in the electrical outlets. And uh, he just was relentless. I mean, over and over and over again, right? Which, you know. And uh, finally, you know, I had to, you know, spank his bottom, and I had to get harder and stern with him, saying, you know, son, like, this will literally kill you. You can't do this, son. Listen. My love for my boy, I'd do anything for my boy. My love for my boy demanded that I bring judgment on my son. You see, the opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. It's doing nothing. It's being a coward. So the second takeaway is this. Do you have a right view of God? Do I have a right view of God? Do we, is this part of our view of God? This, this, this God that we serve of the Bible is just. Do we ache to be agents of justice in our community? Do you long to be a mirror of what God is up to in the world, though you may not see it or recognize it? Because we care, because we love, because we have tasted redemption, because we have tasted mercy, do we get involved to help those who have no voice? Listen, first prayer is making. Do you leverage your life for those who have no voice? Do you leverage your wealth for those who have no voice? Do you leverage your influence? Do you leverage your networks for those who are hurting or being hurt or who have no voice or are being taken advantage of? This, this is part of our calling as the Christian community. It is Micah 6.8. Then what have I told you, O man? What is good and what does the Lord require of you? To love justice, to walk, to love mercy, act just. I'm messing up the verse, forgive me. Uh, to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. And there it is. But that's not all. It's also a rescue story. When you get to chapter 2, uh, they step in and says, you remember my covenant that I made with you back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17? You remember that covenant I made? That though you were faithless, that though you were sinful, that though you're a mess, that though you do it, you know, you, though you really are that wicked and you can't even keep up the deal that we made? Do you remember when I made that deal that said I would actually kill myself before... I would ever abandon you before I would ever break this covenant. That I am the God that is faithful to you and I would never leave you. If you remember, there was a show that came out not um, years ago and it was called My Super Sweet 16. And uh, it was this reality series that covered these insane 16 year old birthday parties of children from like insanely, insanely, insanely rich people, like a whole nother level. And if you remember, it was like to watch the show. It was like you just kind of kept regurgitating over and over and over again because you're just like, oh my goodness, this is awful, right? And there was this one show, and this teenage girl had the wardrobe of a celebrity. 
Like, literally, I think her, her, like, her wardrobe was like the size of my house. It was, like, unbelievable. I mean, I, I wasn't even mad. I was impressed. And uh, she's getting this birthday party that's literally costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. All right? Now, I'm not exaggerating. I know preachers do it, but I'm not exaggerating here. She is literally getting a birthday party that is costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And all throughout the show, like, I'm getting nauseous again. All throughout the show, she's like, Daddy? For my birthday, I want a trip to Hawaii. And he's like, okay, baby. And then she gets to Hawaii, and she's like, this isn't good enough. I want a trip to Pakistan. And he's like, okay, let's go. And she's like, I want a new car. And he's like, you got it, schnookums. And then she's like, I want another trip to Hawaii. No, 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 I want my friends to come. Go get them. Right? And he goes and gets them. And over and over and over again, this, like, little entitled girl just keeps asking over and over. And she's not grateful. She's not thankful. She really doesn't care. And what does her daddy do? You got it, schnookums. You got it, but yes, you, you, I'll get anything you want, my little darling, right? It's a great case study in parenting. Over and over again, the father just kept giving this girl what she did not deserve. In chapter 2, it opens with God saying, I made a covenant with you, that I have rescued you and I will never turn my back on you. In almost every chapter of Judges, and in almost every chapter of our lives, we forget God, they forget God, they abandon Him, they display unfiltered wickedness, they spit on His throne, just like the Canaanite evil people. And yet He keeps coming back, He keeps rescuing, He keeps forgiving, He keeps loving, He keeps being merciful. This God of justice is also this God of love and rescue to those who don't deserve it. Why? Because it's just who He is. Listen, most people only love those who love them, and I gotta admit, that's me. I'm really bad at loving those who don't love me. I struggle to care and love those who don't like me or don't like my children or don't love my family. I wish I was godlier, but I'm not. I struggle. Many of you probably do too. But God loves and seeks the good, even of people who are his enemies. But because God is good and loving, he cannot tolerate evil and he despises injustice. So imagine God's situation. He's a judge who is sitting, imagine a judge who is sitting at the, at the trial of his boy. And uh, his boy's guilty, can't get away with it, everybody knows it. And this judge knows he cannot let his son go. Because without justice, no society can survive. How much less can a loving God ignore justice that is due to us for all of our rebellion, and yet we are loved? And the answer is, he can't. That this God is obligated to bring justice against his own people, though he loves them so much. That my life, that your life, has stored up the obligation that God needs to unleash his wrath and unleash his vengeance against every single one of us in this room. That by birth, that we were all enemies to him. And our lives have been nothing but a case study of why we're enemies to him. And so what's the answer? What's the solution to the need to bring judgment against us and yet deeply loves and he's committed to rescuing us? And it's the tribe of Judah. Do you remember back in chapter 1 in the beginning part of Judges? And God says, Judah... Send Judah. That Judah is going to be the one that is going to rid the land of evil. Judah is going to be the one that is going to clear everything out. Judah is going to be the one that is going to bring justice to the land. He is the warrior. He is the deliverer. He is everything. When you get to Matthew chapter 1, you begin to read a genealogy. and You begin to read an ancestry about a man who was born in the city of Nazareth. And this man came from an incredible family. He had an unbelievable ancestry. He came from the tribe of Judah. That man, that God-man, was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
That don't you know that he is the one, he is the true warrior, the true deliverer, he is the true judge, he is the fulfillment of the tribe of Judah, he is the one who's going to right all the wrongs, he's the final answer to our cry for help and mercy due to the mess we find ourselves in. Jesus is the hope of judges and he's our only hope too. You see, because he will be the one who will reconcile the tension, that God himself, Jesus, will take on flesh and he will walk this earth, this messy, wicked world, and amidst it, live a life of unfiltered righteousness. But instead of being praised, instead of being exalted, he will be lifted on a cross and will experience unfiltered wickedness as he gets murdered by his own people. And then on that day, intrusion judgment will happen again, where the final judgment will fast forward and come onto Jesus. And he will experience the judgment of God the Father as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's the answer. There is where the tension finally kisses. That he must not be experiencing the judgment for his sins because he has none. He must be experiencing the judgment for my sins. The father's need to bring justice was taken out on his boy so that he did not have to take it out on his people. And so on the cross, the justice of God shows forth as sin is punished in full on Jesus. And this is our hope. This is, this is our excitement that we are due great justice and judgment just like they received in chapter 1. But he took it. He took it all out on Jesus so that he doesn't have to take it out on you. And listen, when, you, when, when God comes to you and he convinces you and he gives you faith, when you come by faith believing that he really is the Son of God, that he died and rose again on the third day, and he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. When you believe that, you're introduced to the kiss and the smile of the Father because of the work of Christ on your behalf. And you have the smile and the love of the Father all of your days because Jesus took all of his vengeance and wrath that was due you, just like was enacted right here in chapter 1. But on the other side of the coin, listen to me, if you don't know him, if you're not a Christian, if you're a skeptic, if you're investigating this, you have to wrestle with this. Because this picture of wrath and vengeance is what sits waiting you. This is your story when the story ends. Because you have nobody to pay your debt. You have nobody to be your shield or your protector. There is nobody that stands between you and the wrath of an angry God. And Jonathan Edwards said it best. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so if you're, if you're at that point, you're wrestling, you have to wrestle with this. Because uh, this is what Jesus delivers you from. And those of you who are Christians, be so encouraged. This is so beautiful. Uh, that this is what you are freed from. <laughs> That Jesus took this type of wrath and vengeance so that the Father doesn't have to take it out on you. And that's good news. That is really, really good news. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that you exist and you've chosen to reveal yourself and you've given us your word. Thank you, Father, that you are not like us, that you are pure justice and you are unthinkable mercy. And you marry it up in a way that just is not logically able to be conceived many times. But it's true that your loving, your holy, your loving nature, your holiness drives your justice and that you are the hero we all long for, though we don't even realize it, uh, at least not all of us. And so, Father, I pray, but I pray for those in this room that are struggling with this question, are you caring or cruel? I pray, Lord, would you give them faith and show them that you really are the caring God they long for. And that, Father, for those of us who are convinced, those of us who are Christians, Lord, would you encourage us, would you, would you renew us and ignite us today that this is what Jesus did for us. <laughs> that you don't have to bring your wrath against us anymore, your people. 
you took care of it in the work of Christ. And what a beautiful, calming, encouraging thing that is. And uh, we thank you, Father, for your kindness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.